Father, we're truly blessed to be here in the house and this day. Lord, we're so thankful that we have the great privilege to have the protection of our government, to have the freedom to, to be here, Lord, to freely worship and to gather together and to study thy word and to speak about it openly. Father, a privilege that so many in this world do not have and that we far too often take for granted. Lord, we pray that as we would look into your word in this day that we could find understanding and clarity from these ancient scriptures that are so powerful even for this moment today. And Lord, pray that the things that we would read that are probably very familiar to us would give some illumination to our lives and to our walks as we seek to communicate and to witness to a world um, that is, is so lost and is so looking for uh, a hope and a purpose. Father, pray that your spirit would give us understanding to these things. Pray that you'd add the increase to what will certainly be lacking in what's offered up. And pray that you'd also be with those who could not be with us today, be with those who are, are, are at home sick, be with those that are still recovering, be with our loved ones that will travel south and, and watch over them on their way. Lord, we're thankful that um, Uncle Urs and Aunt Martine did make it safely and would just pray the same for Uncle Dan and uh, Sister Gabby as well, Lord. Again, we're so thankful for this privilege that we have as a, a family to gather together. And Lord, as we would now seek to do so around your word together, we'll give you thanks for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'll give you a full disclosure, and this is probably what, when you set off... When you start a sermon this way, everybody gets a little nervous, but uh, Ash had a few commitments last evening with, with Ellie, and so I was home with the boys and was, had, had some thoughts on my heart. Uh, even if you were here for Bible study on Wednesday, you probably got the sense that there have been some things that have been going through my, through my mind lately. Um, and even last week, as, as Uncle Rod was, was preaching about Abraham, uh, some thoughts have just continued to come come to mind. Um, and I wrote, a, I wrote something down as I was sitting there last week, just as a reminder to myself. And, and the just simple phrase was, um, it was a question for myself, but can I walk and chew gum at the same time? Can I walk and chew gum at the same time? Can two, th- and the fact of the matter is we can, that two things can be true at the same time, even though they may not seem to make sense. And they may not seem to align. And what I've been struggling with is I am a, um, I think Josh had the Bible study a couple weeks ago. And we were talking and, you know, when the news we see around us. And I think, Dad, you even mentioned how in the past you'd been much more excited to, to watch the news. Um, Josh and I talked afterwards and said, you know, we are both those people that consume the news, probably to unhealthy levels. I won't, maybe he can comment whether his is healthy or not, but I'll comment that mine's probably an unhealthy level at some point. But what the Lord really was striking me with last week is Uncle Rod was preaching, and we're talking about Abraham and some of the things that went on in Abraham's life. This man that was chosen by God, this man that God gave a covenant to, which we'll talk about a little bit this morning, and I promise I, I, my, my plan this morning is to touch on a lot of scriptures. I don't expect you to follow along. 
and I also don't expect it to be a deep dive in Abraham. I don't want to take away from what Uncle Rod was doing, but when Ash was gone and she came home last night and said I, she saw me studying and I, I kind of gave her the idea as to where I was leaning, she says, oh, you're going to go there? I, I try to be very careful not to be political, and I'm going to preface a couple things right out of the gate here. Just because you talk about something that is on the news doesn't make it political. Just because you talk about something that has a politician's name in it doesn't make it political. I promise I'm being really, really careful. And as one brother at camp a couple years ago said, please listen carefully to what I'm saying. Don't read into anything that I didn't say. I'm also not very good with my words sometimes, so if you think I said something wrong, talk to me afterwards. But what I've really been struck by was we need to talk, we need to look in a Mike version, which is like the Cliff Notes version, okay? This is not the apologetics version. This isn't diving into prophecy because I can't do that. You can see how red my face is getting right now. This is not my comfort zone. But I think it's important for us to take a few moments, and this may be short, this may be long, I'm not making any promises one way or the other, but to go right back through how this whole holy land covenant with the children of Israel came about. But what does it mean for us today? Because my, I, would, I will propose to you, I will propose to you that there are many a Christian myself included at sometimes, that we'll take the line, we'll take the verse that says that we're engrafted into the, the tree, we're engrafted into the vine of Abraham. And by saying so, we engraft ourselves into everything else that goes along with that. Dare I say the political side of things that go along with that. Now careful, I didn't say anything. This is not an anti-Israel message, I promise you. But it's a, let, I would like us to look at the scripture and see how some of these things came about. Again, the Cliff Notes summarized version of it. And then discuss just at the end, what does that mean for us? Where should we be? What, what should the message of our walk as believers be? So that it can be consistent with what scripture has told us. So it can be consistent with these first few verses that we're going to read in chapter 12 of Genesis that say that, well, we'll do it in a second. So we can be consistent with Genesis, Genesis 12, but that we can also talk about some things in Romans 11 that show how God has such compassion that regardless of the, the wayward state of a people in a nation, that he seeks to engraft them back into the vine. And so that's way too long of an intro, and I think part of it was just to calm my nerves down. I don't expect any of you to, to follow along this morning. I have a number of passages that we'll look at. Some of them are ones that we've actually looked at already uh, over the last couple of weeks. But right in Genesis 12, we have this man, Abram. Uncle Rod has already started um, reviewing some of these things with us. And, and I want to just point out, We're just going to read. Genesis chapter 12. It says, And now the Lord said unto Abraham, or Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, 
and from thy father's house unto the land that I will show thee. And I will make thee a great nation, I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is one of the strangest verses in the Bible, if I can say that. Verse 3, And I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. And in thee all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God first starts talking to Abram and reveals this man, Abram, to us and, and decides that he is going to be the one that he's going to establish a covenant with, he says, first and foremost, if the, I will bless those that bless thee and I will curse those that curse thee. And in thee all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. What does that tell me? It tells me that I, be, I better be very careful about how I look at the children of Israel. That doesn't say anything about how I should look at the rest of the world. I'm not casting a judgment or casting dispersions on everybody else or on all the other things that happen. But God said right there, bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. What do we know about? This? We know about Abram as he, he continues on. We know he's not a perfect man. We won't get into the details of last Sunday. His message, but Abram had some issues when he was going, uh, telling, I think it was the, uh, the Egyptians, that his wife was actually his sister. And though that was kind of technically true, it certainly wasn't the moral thing to say. It certainly wasn't the appropriate place to be. We continue on in chapter 13. Abram has now gone. He's going after this land that God's provided for him. He's He's trying to find it there, and he has his nephew Lot with him. Um, I won't even really get into to Lot this morning. Verse 14 of chapter 13 says, And the Lord said unto Abram, after Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from this place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thine seed forever. But I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that man can number the dust of the earth. Excuse me. So that if man could number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed be also numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it to thee. God wasn't really mixing words with the blessing that he was going to provide to Abraham. Or at this point, it's still Abram. He sets him on a mountain. He sets him on a mountain. He says, look north, look south, look east, look west. All of this will be yours. 100% non-negotiable. It will be yours. And your seed, your, your family, your, your offspring will be innumerably numbered. That's not a thing. Just innumerable. And we don't get a lot of response from Abraham at this point. We don't, there's not a lot that, you know, interaction that comes back or dialogue that we read. Chapter 14, there's some wars. The end of chapter 14, we have um, Abraham meets, or Abram meets Melchizedek. Chapter 15. Abraham, Abram raises this issue with God. You know, you made this promise. You made this promise that I'm going to have offspring. However, I am getting old, my wife is getting old, and the only child of our house is one of the servants, and in this case, it's not, this isn't Ishmael yet, 
as one of the servants' kids. Like, how is this going to happen? And behold, the word of the the Lord came unto him. This is chapter 15, verse 4. This shall not be thine heir, meaning this uh, steward, the child of the steward of the house. This shall not be thine heir, but he shall come forth out of thine own bowels. He shall be thine heir, and he shall be brought forth abroad. And look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Let me repeat that. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, wherein shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take thee a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took them all unto, and he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece against each other. For the, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down from the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell over Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, God said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance, and they shall go to their fathers in peace, and they shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. But it came to pass that when the dark... When the sun went down and was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between the pieces. And in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kezazites and the Kadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the, Ref- and the Rephem and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Had to throw in some of the complicated names just at the end for context, I guess. But God makes a covenant with Abram. Abram is so still questioning, not sure of this, wondering how it's all supposed to come about. And he he asks God, how is this possible? And God, knowing the future, obviously, and not wanting to mix things up with Abram. He's not lying. He's not going to lead him on. He says, you know, there's going to be problems. There's going to be captivity. You're going to spend 400 years in captivity. And it won't be the only time you're in captivity. He doesn't tell him right here. We'll read that. Maybe we'll get to it. In Jeremiah. Jeremiah or Nehemiah? Jeremiah. Where because of the people's disobedience, they have consequences. They go into captivity. Because of their lack of obedience to God, there, there's effects. I guess consequences is still the best word. But in spite of that, in spite of that, a sacrifice is made and God brings down the fire and in the fire makes this covenant with, with Abram that all of these things that I'm telling you, that even through the captivity, I will lead your, your offspring back to this promised land, back to this holy land. And so you would think, right, if you're reading the Bible fast, if it was a movie, 
uh, we would fast forward to the next scene and we'd say, well, how he, he's got to take that in faith. He's got to run with that. He's got to know that if God's proving these things, God is, you know, God is bringing down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. It's got to be the truth. Well, he goes home. And in going home, Sarah has some ideas and options. You know what, let's just fast forward to it. Sarah says we've got to speed up the process. Sarah is looking in the mirror realizing that her time of having children has long passed her by and says, well, if God said it's going to happen, we've got to figure out how to help him. And so we know the whole scenario. She sends in Haggai, Hagar, Hagar. I'll pronounce it better later. Her helper, handmaid, thank you. And says, this, this, is how you're, this is how you'll get a son. It's amazing how fast Sarah really regretted that. Because it, before the baby even comes, Sarah is mad at Hagar and sends her off. Sends her off out into the, to the wilderness. And in verse 7, we start to understand why, we have, why things are the way they are today. It says, The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by the fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way of Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence comest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself unto her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, for it shall be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard of thy affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Do you believe the Bible? Is, is this objective fact? We're, you're sitting here today, so I would, assume, I would assume that that's the case. I would assume that we take the word, we read it, and we believe the truth of it because it's been powerfully confirmed in each of our lives. When I read those words, I almost have to laugh because it's not funny. But it is so incredibly on point with the relationship that we see in the Holy Land today. The children of Ishmael. The children of Ishmael described in the Bible. And it's not, oh, I'm sorry, the Bible's not politically correct. It, it may not be politically correct. But the Bible says right here that the children of Ishmael will be a wild, or um, I think other translations talk about it being um, aggressive men. And will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. It says they're going to be mixed up forever, and it says that the Arab people are going to be angry. It's not political. The Bible says that. Doesn't say that inherently, the Bible doesn't say inherently, that it's evil, that they are evil. This was a blessing upon God. It's in, and she said, The name of the Lord shall speak unto her. Thou 
Thou God seest me, for he said, Have I also looked hereafter and seeth him? Oh, that's not the verse I was looking for. Oh, verse 10. Yeah. I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, and it shall be not numbered for multitude. God wasn't angry with Hagar. God wasn't angry with Ishmael. God knew what was going to come. He knew conflict was going to come. He knew that there was going to be aggression between these peoples. And because we can't always understand the way God works, because we can't always understand his purposes, we can sit here and go, well, this isn't fair. Why did one have to be wild? Well, fast forward a little bit. When we start looking at some of the things that the Israelites did, they were not and are not and will not be perfect people. They're not. Just like this nation, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all, is not a perfect nation. We are not all perfect. And the facts of the matter, the facts that we read in Scripture, unfold over time. This prophecy is fulfilled in our eyes right now, and it has been for all generations. We... I don't want to belabor it more a little bit later. So there is this son. There is this son that is now going to be in conflict with the rest of Abraham's seed for the rest of time. We also got to remember that when it talks about Abram's seed being innumerable like the sands of the sea, it's not just talking about the tribe of Judah. It's not just talking about that one, maybe one and a half if you include Benjamin, that one and a half tribes that espouse themselves to be the true Israelites today, the ones that live in the land. That's not who he's talking about. Those 13 million people on this face of the earth are not the only people of the seed of Abraham. They're not all the children of the promise, but they're all children of the seed. And sometimes in my mind, I think I've conflated those things. I think I've, I've taken some of these things that I hear, maybe because somebody on Fox News was screaming about it one way or the other, and I've trumpeted this particular opinion because it fits the political narrative that I check a box for. But the reality is, if this, because this is objective fact, the truth of Scripture is going to differ from those opinions that this earth would, allow, would ask us to espouse ourselves to or of or for, or to align ourselves with. So chapter 17, I, I just, I'll, we'll skip a little further. Abram was 99 years old. Sarah seems to have gotten over her frustration with Hagar or whatever, and they're gone. And God makes a covenant. God makes a covenant with Abram again and gives him this child that he, uh, he has, been, has been asking for. Verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, and their generations forever, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, and thy seed after thee in their generations. 
And this covenant is, he goes and then circumcises, um, actually this is even before, I, should, I think I said that Ishmael was gone. That's not the case. The end of this chapter is, is God going in, excuse me, God instructing Abraham that now his name was going to be Abraham and that he needed this to circumcise his son. In this case, it's Ishmael. Take that up with your Muslim friend sometime. That the Bible says that Abraham circumcised Ishmael. Not that it matters, but that the Bible says so. And that that covenant was made. Now that, that external um, identification of what the children of Israel would look like, those children of Abraham, the children of the promise would now have this one identifying characteristic or identif- additional identifying characteristic. And we know, I don't want to belabor it, we know that Isaac is born. We know that at one point Abraham has to show immense faith. Incredible faith. You know, the whole God himself will provide the lamb. We have these monumental experiences that Abraham makes. Now, remember, still wasn't a perfect guy. Still has a son that's going to cause all kinds of struggles to his other son. Isaac, also not perfect in every scenario. Plays favoritism. You know, the, 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 his two boys don't seem to get along. And we have two, we, we, the promise continues. We have two more sons, Jacob and Esau. And we won't get into the birthright thing and we won't figure, you know, God, why, why was it the oldest that didn't get the birthright? It didn't seem like Isaac or Esau did anything particularly wrong. His brother was just a little shrewder, you know, more street sense, took advantage of him. And somehow the, this biblical inheritance, this eternal inheritance, this Preferred status in heaven above comes about in a way that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. But it's how God, it's it's how God's will unfolded in these folks' lives and how their decisions brought these things about. In chapter 28, and Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Go to Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a people. And give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee, and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham." That same inheritance that Abraham had given to his son Isaac, Isaac then goes and transfers onto his son Jacob. Jacob then has his experience with, um, with the angel. The angel climbing up and down the ladder has his name changed to Israel. And we start getting closer to these names that we understand and identify today. Just anecdotally, and I, I didn't know that because, I, again, I'm not a scholar of these things and I probably didn't pay near close enough attention. But of the 12 sons of Jacob, the, 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 the group is narrowed down over time. The group is narrowed down to the, the tribe of Judah, maybe the tribe of Benjamin. The, the folks that identify as Israelites today are coming from that tribe. The rest of them have been scattered. The rest of them have all been scattered about. 
They've had ups and downs all along the way. They've had times of obedience and times of not obedience. We, and I'll just read a couple verses. I guess I'm talking faster than I thought, so we have more time than I thought. Jeremiah chapter nine, or Jeremiah chapter nineteen. Thus saith the Lord God, go and get a potter's earthen bottle, and take of the ancients of the people and the ancients of the priests, and go forth into the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the east gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell thee. And he said, Hear the word of the Lord, O Israel, or excuse me, O kings of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, the, the which whosoever heareth it, his ears shall tingle, because they have forsaken me and have estranged this place and have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah have filled this place with the blood of innocence. They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came, into, came it into my mouth. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Torphet, the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the counsel of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hands of them that seek their lives. And their carcass will I give to the meat of the fowls of heaven for the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and hiss because of the plagues thereof. And that's enough, because it gets even grosser after that. This chosen people, this chosen people called by God, promised with a covenant that they would inherit this land, that it would not be taken from them as long as they followed God. And when they didn't, look what happened. In Luke 19, Fast-forwarding way, way ahead. We've got Roman occupation. We have Jewish zealots that are trying to raise up against the Roman occupation because from that point on, or thereabouts, again, I'm not the historian, they were, not the, pe- they were the people of the land, but it was not their land. Always under the control of somebody else. Always under the finger of somebody else. And if you remember the adventures in Odysseys, you remember even just reading the beginning of the New Testament, when we have all these zealots that are raising up against Rome and fighting against the authority because they want their land back. Jesus, in chapter 19, which I guess we'll get to in our Bible studies here in a couple weeks, I'll probably try not to steal the thunder, says, When he came near and he beheld the city, he wept over it saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, in the least of these this day, the things which belong unto thy peace, talking about Jerusalem, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and help thee in on every side and shall lay, even, shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus looking out over Jerusalem, 
And being able to see just a few years down the path when Titus would come in and wipe the city out. I'm not going to be super graphic about it, but 500, estimates of 500,000 Jewish men crucified. One example I heard was as they were lined up on the roads, I think heading north, the crosses were so close to each other that the hands of those being crucified almost touched. Continual, continual heartache and pain because in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, because of disobedience. And just because I feel like I have to say it, I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that the things that currently go on were justified. That the things that they are currently experiencing are in any way, shape, or form a product of something that they've done. I set that aside. What I'm proposing is that this pattern, this pattern that we see, is something that God said was going to happen. And it continues to unfold. The part that I don't think... I've done Bible studies on the book of Romans. I've read this chapter a number of times. And for some reason, as I read it now, chapter 11 of Romans hits me in a way that um, is, is different. And also gives me an understanding of where we come into this and of what my responsibility is. Um, you know what? Bear with me. I don't know that I can do this without reading this chapter. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I am an Israelite. This is the Apostle Paul. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, but seek thy life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it's of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. I think we've got to kind of talk about that, because it's old English and need to understand it. He starts out, he, he, there's been a question, obviously. The question is to these Jewish believers, these Jewish Christians in Rome, where are the Jews? Where, where, are, where are God's people? And he uses the example that Elijah said. You know, Elijah said, where are the people? And God responded and said, I have, I've saved a remnant. 7,000 I've saved. And Paul says, in the same way, they're here today. In the same way, there is a remnant today. But then he says, this verse 7, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which it seeketh for, but the election has obtained it. That verse is saying, 
how is it possible or how is it fair that Israel has not gotten the salvation that it looks for, but the elect, us, believers, have been able to receive it? Here's the answer. According as it is written in Isaiah, there's a verse in Isaiah, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David said, as David said, it's and David said, but it could be as David said, let their table be for a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back alway. And I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. For now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of their riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I might provoke to emulation or to jealousy that them which are of the flesh and might save some of them, for in casting away of them to be reconciled of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but for the life of the dead? But life from the dead. Let me stop for a second to try to explain that one. Paul had this, this conflict in himself. This was a man that every time he got to a town, I, I use this phrase all the time, in Acts it says, every time he got into a town, as his manner was, he went into the synagogues. He had a passion for the Jews like no one else, but his calling was to the Gentiles. And he sets up this imagery for them to say that, you know what? The blindness that the Jews experience, the rejection that they have toward Christ, has caused in many ways, has, has been the illumination, has been the spark that has caused this awakening in the Gentiles. Almost to say, Gentiles, you better not take it for granted. You, you can almost thank the Jews that they didn't take the message. If they'd have taken the message, you may not have had opportunity to experience it. And so there was a slumber in some respects that had, taken, that had overtaken them so that there could be an illumination in the, with the Gentiles. And then he says, so, but is all hope lost then? Did God break his covenant? Are these people just lost? Is there no hope? I know we should pray for them. I know we should support them. I know it says that if we bless them, we'll be blessed. And if we curse them, we'll be cursed. And yeah, we can line up with that. But what really has to take place? How can redemption come? For if the first root be holy, the lump is also holy. And, the root, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. We're going to start talking about a tree. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in it among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, that thou mayest stand by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear." For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed that he also spared not thee. I don't know, maybe this imagery is a lot clearer than it used to be for me. There's a tree. The vine of Abraham. The tree of Abraham. The natural root. 
God being the natural root. There were branches that were cut off for unbelief. The Jewish people at different times cut off, cut down, knocked down because of unbelief. And because those spots were there, we as Gentiles were engrafted into that line. We were, we were given opportunity. Wow, I don't even know if I like saying it this way. But we were given opportunity in some ways by virtue of the fact that there was room there. Certainly God would have made room. I don't want to say that he had to knock one down that we could come. But anyway, we are there because of their sacrifice in some ways. But we better not be haughty about that. If we as an unnatural branch were grafted in, God is just waiting for the day to engraft his people back into that line, back into that tree. The natural branch coming back to the natural root. Verse 25. I'll start up a little higher. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to the nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, the Jews, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that the blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. There is a holding, there is a, a cloud of sorts that is being held in some measure so that Gentiles could be engrafted in. And at some moment, as we're going to read, and I think Isaiah says it, Zechariah says it also, and we'll gather all the nations together. When, when Christ returns, there will be that awakening. There's going to be that time. I don't want to read all those verses. There's going to be that moment when not just Judah and Benjamin, those identified children of Israel, not just those, but all of those scattered remnants, through all the course of the world, through all, all the nations of the world, will be gathered back together and will recognize that, that their, their, their king has come, their savior has come, and will be given opportunity again at that point to accept that salvation is there and that they can be engrafted back into the tree. Verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are without recompense. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they may obtain mercy. That word recompense. For the gifts and the calling of God are without, and I want to use a different one, are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That covenant that God made with Abraham will not be broken on his part. In the same way that the covenant God made with us will not be broken on God's part. And the question that I have to ask myself is, am I living up to the commitment and the covenant that he's made with me? What is all of this? What does all of this mean? What, what, what good is it? How should I look at the world? How, how should I 
center my, my thoughts? Should I look at all of the news that happens there and endorse one side or the other 100%? It's impossible. I need to have compassion for the horror that these Israeli people lived through a month ago. And I have to have compassion for the horror that these folks in Gaza are living through right now. And I need to pray for the supernatural protection of all of the innocent. Romans also talks about how God has ordained authorities to execute judgment on evildoers. That's a hard one for me. I believe it. I don't always understand it. But the same God that ordained all of these in authority is the one that said, is the one that said to Hagar, out by the fountain, your seed will be numbered innumerable, or will be made innumerable, but they will also be in conflict for the rest of their lives. And they're going to dwell with their brethren in the land. He didn't even have to leave, he didn't have to say the obvious part, but if they're going to be in conflict and they're going to dwell together, then they're going to be conflict all the time. I also have to remember that it says that in the last days that all will turn against them. That every nation, excuse me, that all nations will turn against them. Well, what does that mean? It means that I can't espouse myself to the opinions and the beliefs and the positions of my, and I mean it proudly, my home nation 100% of the time. And I need to be very careful as I view things and I see things proclaimed and, and not, not be able, not just identify and say, because, because I, well, we don't click boxes anymore, because I circled that little thing on my voting tab that I am 100% in line with everything that that person, he, she, uh, supports themselves. And that's frustrating, and that can be irritating, and that can be a measure of throw your hands up and don't get involved and don't be aware and and just throw all caution to the wind. Well, that's not what we're called to either. It says, "Bless that he will bless them that bless thee, and he will curse them that curse thee. Let's be very careful where we line up. And if we didn't, there was one line that I, that a politician shared uh, about a week and a half ago in looking at all these things, said these words. He says, the Bible is very clear. God raises up authority. The Bible is very clear. God raises up authority. God has ordained and allowed each of us to be brought here for this specific moment. The fact, the fact 
that God would hold his hand over the affairs of this earth and allow a politician to make that statement tells me that at least for the next little while, there will be at least one nation that will not fall in line with everybody else and turn against Israel. But for the moment, that's one man. Maybe there's two, maybe there's three, maybe there's a couple more I don't know about, and maybe I shouldn't worry about that. I can take encouragement in the fact that I heard that piece. But then I also have to think, do, should I really... There was another verse in Luke I forgot to read. I'm supposed to start with this verse. I started all nervous and was dark. So maybe we'll end a little later. Luke 21. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and the stars and upon the earth Distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when they see these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. As a kid, I didn't like those verses because life was really fun. You know, when you're skiing on the lake or you're skiing on the hill or you're at camp with your friends and everything's great, your redemption coming nigh seems, I don't want it to come nigh. Life is too fun. When I look around, it seems more and more attractive every day. Not that I'm not having a wonderful time with my family. Not that I'm loving life to the fullest right now. Best year of my life. Just had the best year of my life. But just look at the heavens. It looks more attractive every day. And if we can have that mentality, if we can have that perspective, if we can trust, if we can walk out the door with a sword in our hand and be able to proclaim to all those around us that the facts of this book are true and they are being lived out in front of us every single moment. And as scary as that looks to the rest of the world, if we can have the joy of the Lord and be able to express the joy because of the facts that we know, we'll be blessed of all men. And we'll be able to convey that blessing to all those around us. May the Lord bless these words.